0: I'm John Hazelwood, a landscape architect at Hassel. and this is Hassel Talks, a podcast series exploring the diverse perspectives, open-minded collaborations, and creative insights that we know will be the key to navigating the increasing complexities of our world. I'm exploring a world of dynamic planting design, diverse and beautiful planting that we engage with in our cities, planting that causes us to stop, take a breath, and connect with nature in our busy lives. Unluckily, the obsession crosses into the design work that I've been working on and has introduced me to leading proponents of a growing movement, a movement with many names. It's naturalistic, planting or enhanced nature. But the name doesn't really matter. It all comes with a desire to improve urban environments to a connection to nature. In this conversation, I'm particularly interested in our emotional connection to planting in our cities. How does it affect us both physically and emotionally? Recently, Hassel had been working closely with Professor Nigel Dunnett from the University of Sheffield. Nigel has been responsible for some of the UK's most spectacular planted environments, projects such as the Barbican in London and the Diamond Garden at Buckingham Palace, and with his colleague James Hitchmo, the planting designs for the London Olympic Park back in 2012. In addition, he's recently published the book Naturalistic Planting Design, which I've got set right next to me, so I can I can refer to that. Hi, Nigel. How are you?
1: Hi, yeah, good, thank you.
0: I was wondering if I could play devil's advocate um, and suggest that all planting should be approached from an ecological perspective and not the emotional or aesthetic concern. What,
1: what do you have to say to that? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I would say that attitude has been the biggest mistake in the urban greening um, world over the past 50 years at least. Mm where people have been put in these sorts of attitudes, and it's still an inherent approach within naturalistic climate design and anything ecological. I take the opposite view. I, I say we should be working with a people-first agenda, that it should be all about engaging people and creating magical experiences and memorable experiences and experiences people want to repeat. And then, of course, you work ecologically and environmentally positively and sustainably. We, we have to kind of always remember why are we doing this? And of course, there are very sound ecological, environmental reasons for doing it, but the human reasons are equally important. And I think it's interesting, particularly in the last you know, few months, how so much new re- realism is being put on the, the health and the well-being aspects of green. You know, the, the gardens and plants at one sense seem such a simple thing, but when you really delve into it, it's 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 a profound thing that we can do
0: is there a link between that emotional response but you've talked about is there a direct link to measures that are of interest to our clients and the developers um, and the investors is is there increased footfall is there increased dwell time and you know in like in the case of the highline is there increase in property prices and rental values
1: I think it's a really important topic and um, it's one that's a bit distasteful to start talking about money and economics in these terms but I think this is where there is that direct connection between the emotional response and then more tangible measures. Um, and the reason it's becoming really interesting is for exactly what you said, that you know, I guess what I would like to see is this transformational infiltration of beautiful green into our cities. Um, how do we do that um, if it's not in a pre- prestige project where everybody is going that same direction, there's loads of money and funding and political will and so on? But certainly people I speak to on projects, you know, that I'm either involved in or when people want to get me involved, they say, well, you can make the arguments and say how wonderful it is for flooding or urban cooling or biodiversity or for human well-being and health, but that doesn't really mean very much to us who have to invest in a place or who have to take the risk of putting a lot of that into green. So I think one of the things that we really need to move on to is, generating evidence that de-risks investment in transformational greening. And part of that is is kind of the work that James and I do to to develop techniques that that make it kind of fail-safe or reasonably fail-safe. But I think the other part of it is to generate evidence for direct measures that have some sort of economic benefit as well as human benefit.
0: Speaking of emotional responses to planting, last year I had the opportunity to visit a garden uh, near Melbourne. In fact, Nigel, you you were with me. Um, it was late March. I think it was coming to the end of over three months of sky-high temperatures and no rain since Christmas. And yet this garden particularly had a profound effect on me. It was full of interest, colour, texture, and importantly felt of its place and of its environment. Um, the planting was the step garden by our second guest, Michael McCoy. Michael seems to live and breathe and work gardens and plants. He's a writer, a TV presenter, and of course, a garden designer. Hi, Michael. Hey, John. Hey, Nigel. Welcome. Thank you. Gardens, you know, apparently they make up 20 to 40% of the surface area of most world cities. So it's, uh, I mean, they're, they're just as important to a city's ecology as, as in, well, to some extent, more so um, than than some of the public planting. Do you think there's lessons from... The world of of the garden that could be that should be listened to in the world of public planting
2: look most certainly i think that um that what people like um nigel and james are demonstrating to us um, time and time again is that the best solutions um uh the the elegance of the solutions that we're hunting for is uh, is not found in a kind of simplistic world, and and that that we have, uh, in so many ways, in the past, um, gone for the most bulletproof, static planting, um, thinking that that was that was the solution. Um, when when Christopher Lloyd was um, here in 1992, he's the only gardener who's ever been asked to speak to the um, the Canberra Press Club. And, uh, and he'd visited the new, um, the new Parliament House the day before. So he said to the, to the National Press Club, um, obviously, the landscape architect involved new four plants and managed to use all four of them in his design. <laughs> 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 and the, 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 the point being that, that our solutions have been simplistic so far. Whereas to get to a place of genuinely beautifully elegant simple solutions, that's going to be on the other side of a huge amount of knowledge and a huge amount of research.
1: A guy called Chris Packham, who's a really well-known TV naturalist in the UK, um, tweeted a little movie a, a month ago of, of one of my pictorial meadows in a little Scottish town on a roundabout in the middle of a traffic island, you know, in the city, and he said something like. Um, you know, really gentle, you know, isn't this beautiful? Um, you know, shouldn't all cities aspire to this? Uh, people love it, it's a really productive use of the space. And, and he just had this barrage of negativity saying, you know, this has no value to wildlife, this is just gardening. It made me think, this sense of gardening as a derogatory term, as something that kind of belittles something, because you're doing something... gives pleasure or that it's for the visual as much as for anything else it's not seen as valid you know if if you're making something that that claims to be ecological but you're doing it primarily for the visual senses the aesthetic and for the enjoyment then somehow it can't be working it can't be doing its job because it's all about aesthetics um and it's it's part of a puritan streak we have that unless it's hurting you know unless it causes pain it can't really be be achieving its end point, and if it's causing pleasure, then somehow that's you know pleasure and function can't go together. So, so again, this is why the mindset needs to shift.
0: And I know in your book you talked about, um, or you suggested that how we respond to nature in our cities is sort of innately tied to a, an evolutionary history.
2: That is the root of the question, really, whether or not we recognise ourselves as humans as being a part of nature or set apart from nature. You know, is that fundamentally where it comes down to that we because we assume we're somehow outside of nature, that our interactions with nature are essentially destructive and essentially invalid? Is that what is that the assumption that that these people are applying?
1: Well, I think it is. And, and I think the most ironic thing about all of this is that um, certainly in, in you know the European context, most of our most diverse and beautiful and valuable semi-natural habitats let's say let's say meadows are totally artificial of course they are they're the result of, of agricultural management and now they, they have to be maintained through nature conservation techniques so in effect you know some of our most valuable um, habitats are gardened, but that people wouldn't recognize that as gardening but in the bigger picture it is gardening you're 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 manipulating a natural system <laughs> but we still have a romantic view of what's natural and what isn't natural. And that romantic view takes us back to the, the agricultural landscape of pre-industrial times. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, the, 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 the kind of um, romantic view of what nature is, beautiful wildflower meadows. And then that's pinned to particular plant communities that we have to kind of restore. Uh, when James and I did the, made the Olympic Park in London, which was Europe's largest new urban, urban park at the time, on a post-industrial site, completely contaminated, uh, in the middle of the city surrounded by, by heavy industry. Um, we had to argue that this was a site for people and not a nature restoration site for restoration ecology. And, and the ironic thing about that is that in the UK, the sale of wildflower seeds, native wildflower meadow seeds peaked in 2013. And it's a direct response to people seeing the designed meadows in the Olympic Park.
2: I then come around to think, well, what what then essentially, what is it about this kind of planting, this naturalistic planting that tugs on my heartstrings in a unique way? And and for me, I, I feel like it is primarily a deep sense of its ephemerality, of 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 passing moments. Um and I also feel like there is that thing of, of a sense that nature has got A strong hand here and that and that uh, I can only imagine that it would be a great sense of relief for people in cities to kind of think I can really see nature starting to have a bit of a a bit of a playground here.
1: I really do think you've hit on it Um, I think all of our experiences that actually to fit best with contemporary architecture a naturalistic uh, landscape works partly because it heightens the boldness of the architecture And the architecture strengthens the natural strengthens the naturalism. But also, people absolutely love to be in this natural feeling space in a contemporary context. When we make gardens and we do the sort of work we do, and we kind of unlock these feelings in people, it's an incredible thing, isn't it, to think to think that that through manipulation of space and the way we arrange space and plants within that space. We have the power to reach deep, deep inside people's subconsciouses and release these powerful emotions which are in there. They're instinctive.
0: Nigel, Michael, sounds like a good place to stop. You've both had a great influence on me over the past few years, whether it's in my public work or whether it's in my private garden, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you. Thank Thank you for joining us. It's been
2: great. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: I'm John Hazelwood. You've been listening to an episode of Hassle Talks. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear more, please subscribe and check out our other episodes. And thank you for listening.